Welcome to T. Hanks for the Memories. I am your host, Darren. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the conclusion of the perfect trilogy, Toy Story 3. Although there was someone out there who wanted to ruin that, uh, which we will talk about in a moment. The film was released on the 18th of June, 2020. Uh, It was the first film for Pixar that made a billion dollars at the box office. And to this point, it was the highest grossing film for Tom Hanks uh, or anybody else involved in the cast. Uh, it is unusual to think that uh, George's mom from Seinfeld is in a billion dollar film, uh, but she is. Uh, it got 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it did have 100%, and then somebody deliberately decided to spoil that. Uh, of course, Tom is getting top billing once again, along with Tim Allen. Uh, and joining me to talk about it, returning from Toy Story 1 and Toy Story 2, we have Andrew and Kestra Duraski. Hello. Hello. Hi. Yeah, so let's very briefly talk about. Armand White, who for some reason he's a film critic, and he saw that there was a, it was a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and he deliberately gave it a bad review so he wouldn't keep that hundred percent. And I don't know why he did that. He's just an insane person um, who is very contrarian. And I remember it being—I don't know if you two remember it—but I remember it being a bit of a controversy at the time that, like, he deliberately gave it a bad score so mm-hmm. he wouldn't have a hundred percent, which the first two films obviously do have, um, you know. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was just a weird thing that happened. Yeah, it, I mean that happens with a number of things on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it just it's it's weird. It's unnecessary. It's terrible. It's I, none of the adjectives that I want to use are going to be positive adjectives yeah. for that kind of behavior. <laughs> you know, it it it, it is it's spoiling. Yes, uh, and and like again, you know, it was just it was one of those things where it's like, I I don't even know why you know he he bothered doing that like like just let it be a hundred percent like the other two like you know mm-hmm. it's you know the whole the whole trilogy is like one of the best reviewed and I and the thing what's really weird is I don't know that anybody would ever look at Toy Story three and go it's not as good as Toy Story two or Toy Story one like I know it's only two mm-hmm. percent but like as a critic there's no way you can see this film and what they achieve just in terms I mean the, the barrels of exploding monkeys at the beginning just that alone is probably more complicated <laughs> than anything that was in the first two films combined so I don't, I don't know it was just a really weird thing that happened um, yeah yeah. No, uh, th- there's no excuses for it. <laughs> no. And of note, Quentin Tarantino put it at number one in his top ten list of films for 2010. <laughs> so, uh, you know, everybody loved this film, apart from one person. Um, so, um, but yeah. Uh, I mean, the first time I saw this film uh, was at the cinema on my birthday. Uh, I saw it in 3D. And then I saw it a couple of weeks later uh, on the 4th of August. Did you see this film at the cinema, either of you, uh, when it, it came out? I, I, I for sure did. I was in high school. Uh, so, And I was preparing for leaving for college in a couple of years. So I felt like I was Andy as I was watching this. And uh, I, my family definitely saw it in theaters. And I definitely sobbed several times. I did not see it in theaters. I was I was out of the country and not in a position uh, to watch movies at the time. But it was one of the ones that I saw relatively quickly um, when I came back and, and was getting caught up. Um, I I had a, a number of films to get caught up on, um, and and so, yeah, this was one of those. And I was a little bit older than Kestra, so out of high school, um, but not 
not really into college um, at that point. And so a very resonant time frame um, for me watching uh, the movie and, and getting similar emotions because I had been done with high school. It wasn't quite the same. Um, and, and, and having been away from home and, and out of the country and, and getting some experience that way, not quite the same as that leaving home experience. Um, but still a, a very transitionary time. And I, I think this is a film that works fine seeing on the small screen. <laughs> You know, for the first time seeing it, I don't, I don't feel like I missed out a ton on the theater experience for this one. Oh, I don't know, Andrew. When I saw it on three D on the big screen, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, but but also, I mean, there is something to having an emotional experience in in the same space where other people are having a similar emotional experience, and so maybe it maybe it really is something that if you're in a theater with with a hundred other people seeing it for the first time, you know, there is something to it. But I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't. Oh. I wouldn't know because because also I mean if you're seeing it in theater you really only get that first one one time. But yeah. But yeah. So I suspect some of the scenes if you're there with a lot of people and it's everyone's first time seeing it, it maybe it does hit a little bit differently. Oh yeah. I mean there's a couple. There's at least one scene where everyone was dead silent and mm-hmm. it's yes. rare that that kind of happens in the in the cinema. So uh, yeah, it was dead silent except for like. People <laughs> sniffling and be like, what "Oh yeah, is no, this yes. movie doing to me?" <laughs> yeah, this was originally a story about a kid whose toys came alive when he walked out of the room, and now all of a sudden we're facing an existential crisis here. So yeah, um, yeah, of interest. Um, I mean, probably only to me, but I, I had two tickets, uh, and one says rating U, and the other one says rating PG. And I was like, "Did they change the rating?" And I don't think they did. I think my cinema just. Uh, put the wrong rating on my second ticket. So, but I did think, I oh, well, I'll check what the BBFC, uh, which is the British Board of Film Classification, um, said about this. And I, I they, they when they give the ratings info, they give, like, what they they say contains spoilers. Uh, but I thought it was quite funny because it says, um, it says, mild violence includes sight of character swinging chain sticks on top of a moving train. Chain sticks is nunchucks. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, knocking another character off the train. Obviously, this is, you know, the opening sequence. And it says, although the sequence is revealed to be part of a fantasy, and so nobody is harmed, which I I thought was nice for them to to let us know. Um, But then it also says, uh, in a comic sequence, a toy monkey hits a character repeatedly with a pair of symbols attached to its hands. Again, I thought that was quite funny. And then for threat, it says... Uh, infrequent scary scenes include uh, an extended sequence in which a number of characters are in danger of being incinerated at a landfill site. Landfill obviously being mm-hmm. uh, how we would refer to, um, you know, like a dumpster, a, a dump, you know, like the, where they end up. Um, and uh, it says, yeah. although they are rescued before any harm is done. Uh, so I'd say that's that's a big spoiler. Y- yeah. That is. Yeah. But then it says infrequent mild bad language includes but more and heck. And a play on the syllable ass in Ascot, a reference to a character's tie, uh, which <laughs> I kind of liked. Um, this is, a, yeah. this is a, a thorough rating assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the BBFC site is really good, um, you know, in terms of giving you kind of exact reasons. And it's funny because when the like when the the, the like the the title cards come up, uh, this annoys me at the cinema, but people have a tendency to do this. Because of the way the BBFC like phrase stuff, people have a tendency to repeat what's on the card. So the title card will come up with the, the rating. 
and this says contains mild violence and scary scenes and i'm sure somebody sitting in the audience will say that out loud because they have a tendency that like the way the bbfc lists stuff they'll say sex references and stuff like that they've got very specific language <laughs> and people always seem to be like entertained by it um i should say as well it came out over here on the 19th of july so it was like a month later after it came out in america so when i saw it on the 22nd of july that's literally three days after it came out um again i saw it on that date because that's my birthday uh i probably would have saw it on opening day if it wasn't you know i was the, the great thing with my birthday is i'm always able to persuade people to come to the cinema on that particular day so i was like let's go to the cinema and then i mean I, both times i saw it at the cinema with uh, different groups of people um you know but the first time i thought let's take a look at what the 3d looks like and it was you know it was okay 3d like it's <clears> nothing <throat> there's nothing popping out of the screen but there was some nice little scenes particularly the incinerator scene obviously we'll have to talk to you once we get to that um you know in 3d it looked amazing on screen with the, the kind of the lighting and everything um you know but obviously we can get into it as we go through the film uh this is directed by lee unkrich uh this is his directing debut um uh, in uh, like on the film um, but he had been working for Pixar like since the beginning. In fact, he only left Pixar in 2019. <laughs> um, and he had been like a, an editor on Toy Story and Bugs Life and Toy Story 2. And then he was also a co-director on Toy Story 2 and Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo, which Finding Nemo set the record for uh, box office for Pixar when it came out in 2003. And Toy Story 3 was the first film to beat that box office. Um, nothing that came out after Finding Nemo made as much money. Um, and when this film was being made, it was the most expensive film in history at that particular time. Um, obviously, pretty much every other Pixar film has cost more since. <laughs> since. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you know. They, uh, they never talk about, for animated films, the the cost of it. You know, it, like, how much does this movie cost gets brought up a lot with live action films and particularly, like, big budget action films, sci-fi films and that sort of stuff. Um, and I don't think they bring it up very much for animated films in well, in the same way. They they don't when it comes to more modern animated films. I feel like when it came to... I mean, maybe this is because I've been doing research yeah. for our next season of our podcast, which is uh, all about anim- Disney animated films. Um, and there's a lot of talk about... I remember from Snow White, when we did Snow White, there was a lot of talk yeah. about the how much it cost. And then our next season's 101 Dalmatians, and there was a, talk, there was a okay. lot of talk about that. But I feel like <clears throat> with more modern films, it's, it's yeah, not very it's, much it's less, less frequently yeah. addressed. Um, unless, unless they're making a big point about it being especially expensive. Expensive, yeah. Well, I mean, I would say obviously in the last couple of years, there's been a bit of an issue with that because obviously, you know, films like, um, you know, Soul and... Uh, was it Coco and uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to, there's a, a couple of the more recent Pixar films they're all costing like 225 million and if they don't get a box office release they're not making that money back I think the only time there's ever really been a conversation in terms of Pixar and cost uh, before you know the last couple of years was The Good Dinosaur which of course uh, when that came out uh, it, it's budget because they had to go back and you know because they changed directors halfway through and they went back and reshot some stuff yeah it was, it was, they changed so, a lot of stuff yeah there was a lot <laughs> well, of yeah. work in that yeah. one yes yeah so the budget ended up kind of starting about 175 million and then getting up to 200 million and then it didn't even double its budget at the box office one of the few times where pixar films basically didn't make money was the good dinosaur uh, i think every other pixar film until they started putting them on disney plus had made a lot of money um but yeah this was 200 million you know and that's pretty much the cost of 
every you know Marvel film for the last like five or six yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, uh, two hundred so, millions on the high side. You know, that's a yeah. big film. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's weird because I'm I'm old enough to remember when a f- like films had I'm trying, I'm trying to remember which film had the first budget that was a hundred million. Um, it might have been like Batman Forever. Or something. Part of me, part of me wants to think that was maybe like one of the Spider-Man movies. Like they made a big deal about that being over a hundred million. But yeah, but I mean the first but, film but to actually be like a hundred, like a hundred million, and people were like, "That's insane! It's never going to make that money back." Um, yeah, yeah, that made the. The late '90s, early 2000s kind of time. At the time when people's when you know Jim Carrey for Cable Guy got 20 million, and people were like that's insanity. Like, why is that one person giving that much money? Um, and at the time, people were saying, "Oh yeah, you know, pretty soon films will cost like 100 million, like regularly." And that did eventually happen. And it's it's kind of weird that uh, you know this is 200 million. It made a billion, so obviously it made its money back. But like you know, the, the kind of the stakes in terms of like how films have to make money these days is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we should say, of course, uh, written by Michael Arndt, uh, which I think is how you say his name, um, who, I mean, what I find funny about like, like the people who have written the Toy Story films is like, it's never quite who you expect has written the Toy Story films. Like this guy wrote Little Miss Sunshine. Um and then, like, you know, Toy Story 3 was, like, you know... Uh, no, Well, he kind of worked on Wall-E and Up, but then Toy Story 3 is, the, like, the first thing he was credited with. And he was still, you know, working for um, Pixar as part of, like, the creative team for Cars 2 and Brave. Um, and then he wrote Hunger Games Catching Fire. Um, and, you know, he co-wrote Star Wars Force Awakens. Um, and then he, you know, was a consultant on um, Incredibles 2. But it's just, like like the guys who kind of write these films it's kind of weird like where their careers go um, well and and writing's so weird with the animated films you know things like like pixar and 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 disney animated films the writing process is not as straightforward of a writing process because the whole film is being developed um kind of throughout the entire production of the film and so you you have kind of cycles of writing and then we're working on some stuff and we're planning some stuff and we're recording some stuff. We got to change a few things. Um, and so, so a lot of animated films, you know, don't have as clear a writing credit. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, somebody's writing the lines that are going into the recording booth, but um, especially Disney movies, probably more than, more than the other ones. There's such a weird development process that the writing credit is is so complicated. I mean, and 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 the Disney movies that are musicals has an even more complicated process, you know, yeah. because the the musical structure means that the writers have to be the musicians who are who are writing it. They're developing the story, and you know, they're writing music. Okay, what story fits this kind of structure? What are we changing? Okay, we're taking out this song. We need to write a new song, and so that kind of process is. Um, it's so different. And and so I, I haven't thought about it as much for non-musical films, but, but I imagine there's a lot of that going on because in, in a live action movie, they kind of have to have a script locked in before they start filming. And then they can make little tweaks here and there. For, because you have set. to start, because you have to prepare a set, you have to yeah. get a soundstage, you have to schedule the stunts and all that sort yeah. of stuff. But when everything's on the computers, it's like, if we decide tomorrow that this scene is set in a different place, you know, it, it, yeah. it, the programming and rendering is different than booking a soundstage. Yeah. 
and of course like as with every pixar film there is like a story credit for you know who came up with the original story uh in this case you know john lester andrew stanton and leon untrick are credited with that but michael Arndt is the one who got the screenplay the, the screenplay credit so um you know like we say the, you know uh, even in terms of like the direction leon crick is the director but there is at least four or five other directors that yeah. are kind of working throughout the film um you know it's obviously a very big process uh randy newman is returning um to, for the i mean what's weird is i don't think he he actually just sang a straight up version of you've got a friend in me in the second one um you know there was like the robert goulet version um and I, again in this we get we get for the first time since the first film a you know a proper reprise of you've got a friend in me um straight from randy newman uh, over the kind of the uh, the opening kind of montage uh, before we we end up in the current day uh, which of course ends on a haunting line which is which obviously we'll talk about it in a second but uh it's kind of interesting that you know like he 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 kind of came back to do that and then obviously we'll get a different version of you've got a friend in me uh, at the end um but the song that is from this film effectively is uh, is we belong together um which interestingly was produced by Mitchell Froome and I'm sure a lot of people out there are like who the hell is Mitchell Froome and the answer is he was married to Suzanne Vega for about four years. They've got a kid together and he produced the, uh, I think the garbage um, James Bond theme that they did. He, he produced one of them. So he produced a James Bond theme and obviously we get a James Bond in this film. So uh, I <laughs> thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, Mitchell, I mean, Mitchell Froome, uh, like, I, I, I mean, the, the kind of couple of albums that he worked on with Suzanne Vega, which I think were 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees and uh, Nine Objects of Desire. Uh, those are my favorite two Suzanne Vega albums. Um, and so that's how I knew of Mitchell Froome. So I just thought it was interesting that he did some producing for Randy Newman on this. Um I think just this was just around the time that he divorced Suzanne as well. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, uh, you know, we get it as with all the films. You know, you got you you got a friend in me. But every Pixar film also has like a new song that is you know kind of the the main one. In, in Toy Story two, they did the same thing, and obviously in the, they're doing it in this. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, and so in addition, in addition to all that, we obviously have the return of John Morris. Um, still voicing Andy um, uh, after all these years, and uh, apparently this is this was at the request of the director, um, uh, and they weren't even sure really after the after the gap from you know Toy Story two, um, because obviously Toy Story one and two were produced quite close together, and you know there's like a ten, a ten year gap between uh, this and Toy Story two coming out, and yeah, they weren't sure a, it's he a, it's would a big, sound big separation. Yeah. Yeah, and and they weren't sure he would sound right, but then apparently uh, they they kind of they they didn't have his contact information. They they finally got it, and then when they heard his voicemail, like Lee Leon Crick, he heard his voicemail and he was like, "Yeah, that sounds like Andy." So he's like, he was like, that was the thing that they weren't sure about. So obviously, you know, he returns here. We've got Laurie Metcalf, of course, returning um, as Andy's mother. Never given a name <laughs> this entire thing. Um, uh, so, which uh, which is really weird. Like at no point, that, I mean, I guess he always calls her mom, so you know, makes sense. But I just think it's funny that they never ever bothered to give her character a name. Um, obviously, the rest of the cast are all returning. We'll talk about them as we get to them, and then we have a ton of new people. More, I mean, what's weird is like in the first film, uh, like everything was kind of uh, amazing that they achieved in that, given the technology and everything, and also given the fact that they basically scrapped the film and started all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same with Toy Story 2 like obviously they, they did that in a time crunch very quickly um, so with this one I think they obviously had the time to kind of you know spend on it um, and the, like the addition of all the new I mean when you get to the toy room all those new characters it's just in, it's insane 
like the amount of detail and stuff and also like the lighting and like the just the, the, like how quickly things have, have kind of changed between toy story 2 and and toy story 3 uh is kind of amazing i i think it's interesting that like you know obviously toy story 2 caused some dispute between pixar and disney uh, that resolved itself when you know disney just ended up purchasing pixar um and this obviously is the first you know like trilogy that pixar have done um you know uh it's well um, it, I, in fact I th- i'm not sure that between i don't know, what other sequels were there was it i was yeah i think it's the only trilogy no it's not yeah. cars oh cars oh, yeah, cars. yeah you love cars I, 3 i do love cars 3 yeah <laughs> I, nobody wants to talk about cars 2 but cars but I 3 love is cars, really great i love cars 3 um so yes that that is a trilogy but finding nemo only has two, two. films Monsters yeah, Inc. Monsters is Inc. just the has two films, but the Disney Plus series, yeah, um, is is also in there. Um, so they they have not gone back to most of the Pixar films. They, most of them are just a single film. And Incredibles is yeah. is Incredibles, the, Incredibles two, and that's mm-hmm. it. So yeah, I think I'd say Incredibles... that's the only one I I would expect Incredibles to have a third. Well, given that Incredibles two is the highest grossing film for Pixar, I feel yeah. that's in- inevitable at some point <laughs> that's going to happen yeah um you know because they're not making iron giant 2 so what else is brad bird going to do with his time um and i saw iron giant at the cinema i supported that film uh, uh, I, so. I would watch an iron giant too <laughs> yeah um yeah which of course the 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 novel it's based on is called iron man not iron giant <laughs> but you know obviously some things could you know you can't keep that name for the big screen for some reason but uh yeah Oh, well, not me, well, me. Are you not me, well, me? Are you not me, well, me?